This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries, official sponsor of Faction 46 and Nice Motorsports Truck Series teams. Forney offers versatile welding and plasma cutting machines, along with a full line of metalworking accessories for beginners, do-it-yourselfers, and professionals. Forney has everything you need for your next metalworking project. Shop for these top-of-the-line products at ForneyIND.com, that's F-O-R-N-E-Y-I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. What's so, the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, you could, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped-up car, and he, he complained that the government gave him these piece-of-crap, cheapo cars and that, that were really no match, but he thought he was doing pretty good. And then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappeared. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And it, it, as he said, it was a game of chicken and I was a chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. <laughs> So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Bought Podcast. Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at lionelracing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. 
Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by QWare. Maintain excellence. That's just the way the chips fall, and I accept it, and I'm fine with it. Didn't win the championship, and uh, we'll go on down the road and forget about it. He'd been bearded up pretty heavy, and <laughs> you smelled beer on him and everything. He said, nah. He said, I've been up there pulling for that Southern Baptist car. But after that, I said, I don't need to do it anymore. It's over, you know, I'm, I'm quitting. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast presented by QWare. And Steve, last week, we talked to Marty Houston. Yes, indeed about his dad, Tommy's racing career. So that worked out so well, right? Oh, oh no. That worked out so well that this week we've got Tommy and Martha's other son, Andy with us. So Andy, how are you doing? I'm doing great. It's glad to be on. And, uh, I listened to the podcast last week with Marty and it seemed like all them Houston's were ganging up on Steve pretty bad. So I figured I'd come and try to help bail Steve out just a little bit. Well, thank you. I'm going to need every bit of it. <laughs> <laughs> and not only do we have Andy Houston on this podcast, we have one of my oldest and dearest friends, Jamie Reynolds. Now, Jamie, of all the people that I know that could tell a little bit about what you and I went through to get into this sport, you were there, man. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yes, I was. <laughs> You, yes, you have been there since the gory beginning, and you eventually got into the sport. You actually worked for the Houstons, and gosh, Winston Cup teams. Let's see, you were. I know you worked for Larry Hedrick. I know that you worked for Robert Yates. I believe you were at Penske Racing. I know that you worked for, I think, Cal Wells at one point. Yep. So you made a name for yourself in this sport, man. Yeah, I had a good time. It was, uh, I was blessed. So this week, we have so much to talk about. This week, we are going to share the second and final installment of my interview with Tommy Houston. And we discussed everything with Tommy from the 1989 Bush Series Championship battle with Rob Moroso to Tommy's decision to get out of the sport. And Andy, honestly, I made a comment in the interview with Tommy that I hated to stop asking questions because your dad is such a good storyteller. Yes, he is. And he's got a lot of stories. And they're not just stories. <laughs> a, a lot of them are memories. You know what I mean? So um, everything that Marty talked about last week, uh, I mean, it just brings back so much of, of what I remember as a, as a kid and as growing up at the race shop and around racing. And I mean, just like having Jamie on. I mean, I remember the first day Jamie came to the shop and it was, the funniest thing. And we'll talk about that a little bit later, but, uh, you know, it, uh, just so many memories and, and I'm just glad to be a part of it. 
Well, you can't open the door and not walk in like that, man. Let's go ahead and talk about <laughs> Jamie's first day at the shop. I got to hear this. Okay, so so Jamie come down, and I think I think he came down a couple times, and you know told my dad that he would like a job that he wanted to be in racing, and he didn't really know a whole lot about it, but he had a lot of passion, and and he wanted to be there. Well, he, he come in the first day. And, you know, everybody in races got their own toolbox. So he come in the first day and I said, you got toolbox? And he had this little plastic box. It looked like, <laughs> it looked like a, it looked like a, it was a pencil box. It was a school pencil box. Like it was his first day of school. And he had some pencils and some pens and he had maybe a tape measure in there. And I don't know, maybe a flashlight. I don't know. Just a few little and I remember it like it was yesterday. And it was like, okay, well, I mean, you got to start somewhere. So this is where he started. You know, my mom and dad, um, they would they would check on Jamie from time to time. He had his own little apartment not far from, from uh, the shop. And it was just a little one-bedroom upstairs apartment. Um, I, I think that my parents was really worried that he was going to probably die because he probably wasn't going to have enough to eat. You know, they weren't sure if the apartment even had heat or air conditioner. So, you know, they would they would check on him from time to time. But it was funny how he got that start uh, with us and and went on and and carried on to have a pretty successful career in racing, uh, you know, before he decided to to move along and do something else. But uh, it was, you know, I remember it like it was yesterday. Well, Andy, here's the thing. It was his first day at school. For sure. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Exactly. So, so Jamie, what do you guys say for yourself? No, I mean, Andy's right. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm from a small town. You lived there. You know how it was. I, I've never seen anything in my life. And, and here I am, like, I guess 18 or 19 years old, uh, moving to Hickory. First time I ever saw the beach was when we rolled into Daytona. So, uh, I mean, I, I didn't know shit. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and, and, and here I am. And, and Tommy gave me a job and, and I didn't know anything, but they definitely took care of me. I, I'll never forget. We had a big ice storm. Power went out. And I was actually living, when I first moved there, I was living with a friend who lived down there. Like a, a, a I say a friend, somebody I knew my whole life was working in construction. And so I was staying with him. Uh, Power went out, no heat, no nothing that that weekend, and, and Tom come got me. So then I spent like the rest of the week because you know power goes out, you don't have power all week. Spent the rest of the week with Tom and Martha that week, and then it was um, sometime probably like a month and a half later, I did get an apartment. And Tom, uh, Tom's the one who kind of helped me get the apartment from Squally. You remember Squally, Andy? I oh, think yeah. that was his name. Right yeah. on Cool Park Road. Uh, Squally yeah. was the man on Cool Park Swimming Pool. So um, yeah. we, we've yeah. known Squally our whole life, and he he dealt in he dealt in some rental property, and it was not uh, it was not top of the line rental property, so to speak. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but like Tom, Tom helped me get the apartment or whatever, and, and I don't know, man. It's like you guys, you know, you just took care of us, it, and it was like to this day, it was y'all were the family I needed in Hickory. Um, between the pool parties and throwing watermelon in the pool and just going fishing with Tom, you know, ever so often, it, it was, it was a 
pretty awesome experience, especially for somebody who didn't know anything going into it. Now, Steve, we are recording this on Tuesday, November the 3rd, and day before yesterday, Sunday, November the 1st, was a momentous anniversary in our relationship. Do you have any idea what that anniversary might have been? How do you mean our relationship? Let's straighten that out here. People might get the wrong idea. <laughs> Why you got to go straight there, man? <laughs> okay. Before anybody gets the wrong idea, November the 1st is the anniversary of the day that I went to work for Winston Cup scene. And that's exactly what I was going to say. 26 <laughs> years ago, November the 1st, 1994 was my first day on the job at Winston Cup scene. Didn't make you uh, like a makeshift office on the other side of the hall where the business journal was. Now that you say that, I think you might be right. I think I was across the hall for a few days. Yeah. But then when you got the cubicles reconfigured and all that, I got to move into the Winston Cup scene newsroom. And <laughs> I was, oh man, that was an awesome day. So, Jamie, listen. As I mentioned earlier, of all the people in the world, you were in a position to know a little bit of what it was like for me while I was trying to break into the sport. How much of those days do you remember, and how much have you intentionally blocked from your memory? (laughs) I'll I'll remember that. I don't ever want to listen to Charlie Daniels' gospel album ever again. (laughs) For some reason, that Cordoba that you had, that was the only thing that would play in there was the Charlie, Charlie Daniels gospel album. <laughs> well, see, so now, every- you're misremembering that. You're misremembering that. No, because, no, 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 no. Because my Cordoba, there wasn't nothing on that thing that worked other than the engine. Oh, maybe it was, the, it was, the, it was, uh, it was the Mercury Cougar. My tape collection was sparse. Okay. But I, yeah, yeah, Charlie yeah. Daniels gospel tape. And that's what I listened to all the way to the race and all the way back. And I think maybe about halfway back, you finally said, Rick, could, could we please listen to something else? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. We would, uh, what, you, what you guys probably don't know is Rick worked for, the, oh, you guys do know this, Rick worked for the local paper. And so I would go with Rick to take pictures the race because, it, hey, it's a free way into the racetrack, right? You got pit passes, you're in the garage. It, it was pretty awesome. So, gosh, I forget how many races we went to that one year. Um, always Rockingham. I think we went to Richmond that year. Um, obviously, Martinsville, Wilkesboro. Um, and then we had the bright idea of talking my dad and mom to driving us to Talladega. What you don't know about that trip is my dad doesn't do very well in traffic. So it was, uh, I think he got pissed off at us a few times. Uh, especially I think at Rick because Rick wanted to eat at a Shoney's and my dad's actually, I think driving around the parking lot at a Shoney's doesn't know he's at Shoney's and, and Rick's like, it's right there. <laughs> dad gets mad at Rick. Yeah. Mad at me. So we, we had a, yeah. You don't remember that whole Shoney's. I, oh, I, I think yeah, we were like in I Atlanta. I remember the Shoney's deal. Now what I was going to ask yeah. you about, do you remember the brakes catching on fire? Coming down the mountain. Yes, I do. Because I was so disappointed we didn't like. Uh, I, I know you've told this story before, but we come down the mountain, uh, Highway 21 out of Sparta. We get to the bottom, and I don't know if you if your brake pedal went soft or what, but for some reason you pulled over, and 
it was like a plastic cover that caught on fire. And I remember we walked up to a store. We called my mom on the payphone, and mom came to pick me up. And you went onto the race. I'm like, "Dang, gum it! I don't get to go to Charlotte because I think it was either All Star Race or or the Coke 600. I can't remember. But yeah, I was so disappointed in that. Well, here's how stupid I was. My brakes had just caught on fire. Okay, and you still went yeah. to Charlotte, and I still went on to Charlotte, Steve. <laughs> Oh man. That's how bad I Crazy. wanted to work for Winston Cup scene. <laughs> <laughs> well, glad you survived that particular incident, that's for sure. <laughs> this week in our first segment, we are going to talk to Tommy Houston. And then in our second segment, we are going to go through the April twenty-third, nineteen ninety-two issue of Winston Cup scene. And this issue had it all from news of the very first test of the lighting system at Charlotte. Motor Speedway to Tommy Houston's win at Hickory, which turned out to be the last win of his Bush Series career, Andy. Yeah, that was a special day. Um, bittersweet, so to speak. Uh, my grandfather, uh, my dad's dad, had, had passed away on Thursday of that week. And, um, you know, in the, in the early 90s, we had kind of gotten to the point to where we were we were starting to get beat a little bit by money and, and by some new faces coming into the series and hadn't had the best of years really. And it, man, that day was just unbelievable. Uh, they, they had just repaved Hickory Speedway and the pavement started coming apart in the race. And it was a, I mean, the, the race was just horrendous. Uh, caution after caution, you couldn't run anywhere, but right on the bottom of the racetrack. And, uh, you know, we ended up winning the race. Uh, as soon as the race was over, we left and went to the funeral. You know, I mean, it was, um, it, it was special. Uh, we didn't know it was going to be his last win, you know, but now, um, the good Lord had a, a plan for that weekend and it all worked out and, and, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was a special day. Now, Steve, I have a new favorite Houston. Okay. And you don't want to know why? No, why? Andy's son, Colin has signed up as a Patreon supporter of the podcast. I'll be done. How about so that? So we have new support from Colin Houston on Patreon. Oh, the Houstons have been good to us, haven't they? Now, I noticed <laughs> that Andy and Marty haven't signed up yet. But, you know, uh, hey, I, that, that's fine. That's fine. That's all right. See, now I'm feeling guilty. Well, you know, Andy, if you do want to sign up as a Patreon supporter, you can do that at <laughs> patreon.com slash the same vault podcast or if you want to be like jamie who has actually helped us out on the podcast you can do a one-time show of support at paypal.me slash the same vault podcast now i told your dad and i'll tell you too i have had a million people ask me how we are related and my response to them is we are not related at least not close enough to borrow money (laughs) <laughs> well, well see there, there you have it yeah now we are closely enough related to where you can support us on patreon <laughs> okay, okay i got you <laughs> throughout the 1980s you chased the championship it was Sam and Jack, and then it was Larry Pearson and Brett Bodine, and then it was Tommy Ellis, and yeah. you just never quite got to the promised land, so to speak. 1989, you're leading the standings going into Charlotte. Right. 
with three races to go. It's looking pretty good. But the Miss race the driver, Charlotte doesn't pan out for you. We'd qualified uh, somewhere in the top, around the top 10, and I missed the driver's meeting. Well, that put me to the back of the field. And we had a pretty good car at Charlotte. You know, I can remember it well. And I started in the rear of the field, and about, I don't know, just a few laps into the race, I saw something when I was going down the back stretch, bouncing on the track. It had come off another car, and it went right straight through my radiator. And I didn't, I didn't, I didn't even know that I had hit anything, but I just saw that part of bouncing on the racetrack. Mm-hmm. I didn't know it hit it. Well, about a lap later, two laps later, I looked at the water temperature, and it was pegged out. Well, by that time, when I had got back to pit road, motor was done gone. So that knocked me out, and Rob won the race at Charlotte. And so he gained all those points from because I was dead last. He was first. Well, then we go to Martinsville, and I'm still looking okay, you know. Well, you go into Martinsville, and you you – Got the lead back yeah. at Rockingham because I think he got black flagged for something yeah. at Rockingham. So you go into Martinsville and you're leading, you're still leading by 19 points. Yeah, I'm, I'm still good. Yeah. I'm still good at Martinsville and the engine blows up. 25 laps from the end or something like that. As long as you had been chasing that prize, how difficult was that for you to take? Well, it was hard to swallow, you know, because everything went pretty good for the whole season, and we had such a good point lead going into Charlotte that I felt like if I could just finish the races anywhere like in the top ten, which I, I felt I felt awful good about, you know, the next three races. But uh, by Rob winning the race and us finishing dead last, there went all the points, you nope. know. Now, why'd you miss the driver's beat? Damn fine, though. <laughs> I don't have a clue why you, I missed You got to blame it on Scott, man. He was your crew chief. No, 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 no. no it wasn't. Blame it on somebody. It, no, it didn't have anything. It, it, I can't put the blame on nobody but me. You know, I mean, I, for some reason, I was messing around somewhere around the racetrack, and wow. it, it didn't, even, didn't even dawn on me. And, I mean, the driver's meeting, they always posted it. I knew when it was supposed to be and everything like that. And when I looked at my watch, if I even if I had a watch on or looked at the time, I was hour late. And I said, oh, Lord, you know. When but I thought we'd still been okay. Yeah. But the deal knocking the radiator out of it and the motor blowing up. Then so when you look back on that, is that a deal where you think, well, maybe if I hadn't missed the driver's meeting, or do you think, well, maybe if I just hadn't hit that piece of debris and it hadn't went through my radio? Either, either one. Okay. I mean, that, yeah. that's just the way. That's just yeah. the way the chips fall. I mean, that's the way they fail, and mm. I accept it, and I'm fine mm. with it. Didn't win the championship, and uh, we'll go on down the road and forget about it. After the race at Martinsville, after Rob had won the championship, and after you'd falling short he winds up in your van during the modified race what do you remember about that conversation i don't know we was sitting out there and we we'd fixed us a drink or had we was having a beer or something and we was sitting in there talking about it and i mean 
we had been friends, and and uh, he and Marty, they were like this. Yeah. They were absolutely like this. Marty would go down, and he would stay down at Rob's and with down at Dick's and on Lake Norman. They would go down there, and Rob always uh, Marty Marty would come back and tell stories about Rob. He said Rob said when he got through racing, he wanted to be a professional bowler. <laughs> a bowler yeah and Mar marty said you know where his trophy for winning charlotte was and i said no where was it and he said he had put it in a closet down there in his bedroom back in with where he had a bunch of old dirty linen and old uniforms and stuff and it was stuck back in there <laughs> And he said, Rob said he wanted to be a professional bowler. He said he when he got done racing. But they, I, I'm glad I have got to know people like that. Uh, it's just like Earnhardt. We hung out together. We went, we went down to South Carolina hunting together. Uh, Teresa's dad, Hal, my oldest brother, him and him and Dale would go down there, and they would get into some of the office. Arguing and who was going to shoot the gun that night and who was going to hold the spotlight that night. And I mean, we've we've gone through all that, back through all that stuff. And I remember spotlight. The days. Now we're on to something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we are. Yeah, we are. <laughs> there, there, Tommy, there's a judge sitting yeah. not ten feet from us That's right, right now. <laughs> I was in the back. Oh, I was in. The back. Oh, it was, was all right. them. Okay, all right, was, I got it. How would be? <laughs> Dale would be driving, Hal would be spotting, and I'd be in the back, and they'd be arguing which one was going to shoot, and they'd big old deer would be out in the soybean field, and but uh, <laughs> I, I, all this stuff. But you know, I, getting back to Rob, I got to know him well, you yeah. know, and and he got to be real good friends with my son, with Marty, and uh, it it really hurt when he passed away. And the same as Dale, we were at uh, Daytona, and Andy was driving the McDonald's car, I think it was, and Andy had fell out of the race. We left the race early, and we were up about Savannah when it come on the radio, and and I had to, I told Martha, I said, you got to pull over and stop, and she said, why? And I said, because I said, Dale's gone. She said, what are you talking about? And I said, they just said on the radio. Our condolences go out to all the Earnhardt family. And I said, he's gone. And I called Hal. And Hal couldn't talk to me. He, he said, I told him, I said, I said, Hal, what's happening? And, and of course, Hal, Teresa's dad, um, he said, uh, who is this? And I said, this is Tommy. He said, Tommy? He said, Tommy? And, uh, and, but how, how he was in shock too, you know, I mean, the whole racing world lost one of the best racers that has ever come from, especially from the tracks like I grew up on, like he grew up on to the, uh, to the position that he got to in his, in his racing career. So I'm, I'm glad I had the opportunity to spend all that time with Dale. I'm glad I had the opportunity to race with Rob, and uh, and the same as a lot of other racers. I mean, like Gene Glover, uh, just to name, you know, there's several out there that uh, that I got to really be friends with and got to race against and be competitive at at a time 
in our life when racing really didn't mean that much to us other than we all go down here on Saturday night and get in an old trap automobile and we race around the racetrack and see who can win and who can do the best and then we go back home, you know? And that's just the way it was. And uh, I, feel, I feel blessed that uh, I, I've got to be able to do that in my lifetime. Tommy, when it comes to Rob, people today, I think when they remember him, they remember how he died. What would you like for people to know about the Rob Moroso that you knew? Oh, well, I mean, Rob was way, way, way. He was, uh, he was just a good kid. He was, he was like my son's. And, and and I can truly say they are they have been very good, very, very good children, uh, very good sons for us. For Martha and me, and we'll be married, we've been married 56 years last month. No kidding. And, uh, wow. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we, we've been together, and we've been out and about, and we've seen it all pretty much, you know. But Rob was, when he come on the scene, he was really, he was a really good kid. He'd hang out. He didn't know where to mash the gas when he'd go in the corner because sometimes he'd go down in the corner and I'd see him <laughs> in a spot like Richmond, somewhere like that. He'd be headed down into the corner. He'd slow way up. He'd head down in the corner. And then he'd mash the gas wide open and turn it down across, across the racetrack and come up across the racetrack. And, and, uh, but he, that was things that he learned, you know. I mean, and he learned from all of us, people just like Jack and Tommy Ellis, Jimmy Hensley, myself. Uh, I mean, that, that was things that, that he would come asked, and he would ask questions. We would ask him when he would got to a place like Atlanta or Charlotte somewhere. Uh, you know, he'd be running pretty good because uh, most time Birdie could get him going. Steve Bird could get him going, uh, uh, put him in pretty good stuff. And Rob was kind of like Jeff Gordon at the time being because uh, Jeff had no fear when he got to those big tracks and uh, – we were a little bit leery because we'd hit a lot of walls, you know, back through our, our years. And yeah. We'd ask Rob what if he knew what gear he had in the car, and he said, I think we got the brown one in it today. <laughs> he said, because <laughs> he, he said, I know we got a blue one and we got a brown one. <laughs> we were trying to figure out whether he, he had a 380 gear, whether oh, he yeah, had yeah. 390 gear or 400, yeah. whatever. And uh, they, they used to paint them things, that old red ox, ox or ox, some kind of paint that they put on those things that they had. But Rob said, I got the brown one in today. <laughs> he had, didn't have a clue about anything else about it. <laughs> you know. Tommy, you have mentioned Scott, and you've mentioned Marty, and you've mentioned Andy. Scott eventually became your crew chief, and Marty and Andy, they were both big parts of your team, and they were also looking to maybe get their own driving careers off the ground. What did it mean to you as their dad to have what was a, a pretty family-oriented team? Yeah, we did at the, at the time being when Southern Biscuit come on board. I mean, we were all totally family. That was, you know, that's what it was all about. And we sold a lot of products for Mid-State Mills, Southern Biscuit Flour. You know, and uh, I mean, we'd go out in Nashville, places like that. People would come out there. They said, it's really good to see that you've got that kind of sponsorship on your car and everything like that. 
This one old guy come out, and he was sitting way up in the grandstand at Nashville, and he come down there, and uh, you could smell he'd been bearded up pretty heavy, and you could smell beer on him and everything. He said, now, nah. he said, I didn't know that was Southern Biscuit. He said, I've been up there pulling for that Southern Baptist car all, all along. <laughs> Praise the Lord. <laughs> Praise the Lord. <laughs> but, but it was. It was, it was really uh, family or anything or anything and it went on and and of course i think that's what like andy's spotting for cole custer now he's with uh Stuart haas and uh he 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 speaks really highly of his job uh he was austin Dillon's spotter for nine years and they won some really big races together and uh he he and austin still stays in contact with with people like that and scott is in florida and uh uh, he's he's doing right well, you know. He's buying some houses and redoing those houses and reselling them, and and uh, so he's a real estate mogul. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, somewhat you might. Say. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but no, it's been good for us. It's the the whole family atmosphere is is has been a good thing. And they went on and they did their things. Marty and Andy did, and uh, and I'm I'm still proud of them because of what they do today because. Marty will come in, and he plays the drums at our church. Yeah, yeah. Discovery Church on, yeah. in Hickory. And uh, he, he's a drummer down there, but he'll come in, and he'll say, well, we had a pretty good car yesterday. Uh, you know, Anthony Alfredo's driving. He'll be driving one of the cars. and and, uh, and Now, what's Marty doing? He is it, in charge of the—well, I say he's in charge. He and uh, He's got a crew that looks after all of the Xfinity— cars for children's okay for right. rcr yeah wow you know so so he's he's got a pretty good job and um he tells me that they can take a car in there like of a morning it'll be just a bare chassis and that evening they'll have it ready to go on the scales you know just wow one day motor in it transmission all the suspension everything well that's you about know. what it took you guys wasn't it oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> that might have that might have been to do that, but then we had to install the body. We had to put the body, <laughs> had to put the body on it. Then. <laughs> Tommy, 1992 at Hickory. That had to be one of the most difficult wins of your career, given the circumstances with your dad. All right. Well, I just lost my dad. And I, I hadn't planned on racing. And my mom, my sister's. Uh, my brothers, uh, they said, no, they said he would want you to race. He said, this is a pretty important race for you coming up and said uh, he, he would want you to race and everything. And I thought about it, thought about it the night before and all like that. And I said, ah, yeah, I think he would, you know, and, and I, I wasn't looking forward to the race by no means, you know, but after the race started, got going, I think we started last or or pretty close last and and uh after the race got going you know i kind of forgot about that and got back in a, a competitive mode and then i saw that the racetrack was coming apart and i thought well that could be a little bit bit of an advantage because it's one groove track and i'd been on tracks like that before and uh as the race progressed on you know i thought well we might just have a shot at this thing and it got down to the last a few laps there and Bobby Labonte in all honesty could have probably still beat me 
it, had we run it, if we'd run the last five laps on the green, uh, he he maybe I don't know if he could beat me without turning me around or not, but but I think he could because he was quite a bit faster at the time being. Unfortunately, the flag was over. I mean, the race was over with at that point in time. They called it was four laps ago, six laps ago. So they called it early, really? Yeah, they called it early. Yeah, okay. They sure did. Because of the racetrack. Yeah. But the racetrack was all hell. I mean, you yeah. know, uh, so they should have been, they probably should have called it before then when it started coming apart. They'd put new asphalt down, and I think every grain of asphalt that you put down somewhere was on that racetrack like <laughs> it was slick track. Yeah. You yeah. know, and if you got up off that bottom, if you got the right side tires up off the bottom, you were gone. I mean, everybody. I mean, everybody. Well, I was actually going to ask. Yeah. That was going to be my next question. Yeah. The 300-lap race? Yeah. 26 cautions. Right. How could you possibly get in any kind of groove before they threw another yellow flag? You, you spun at one point. Oh, yeah. 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 Is that all I spun? I, th- I might have spun. <laughs> Is that all? <laughs> yeah, but I, I mean, I yeah. mean, uh, yeah. and you had people in there. You had Earnhardt and Waltrip and Jimmy Spencer was in there. You know, Mr. Excitement. I mean, he made it for good, good, and and uh, and of course Bobby Labonte was in there, and he had he really had a good car that day, and uh, Kenny Wallace, and I mean, you had a you had a class feel of of cars there, but. Uh, but it was it was it was treacherous. It's kind of like the Roval was. Yeah. You know, yeah. On all the water and everything. If it had been any other track other than Hickory, because that that's where you cut your teeth. Right. You had made thousands upon thousands of laps there. Right. If it had been any other track, do you think you would have went ahead and run that race because of your dad? Um, probably not. Yeah. You know, I had, had a lot after I thought about it and after the race and everything, we had a lot of fans at Hickory and it was a packed house that day. I mean, it was, oh, it was people everywhere. And, uh, after I thought about it, I thought, well, I'm glad I did that because not, you know, it's kind of being selfish to not do it. And I'm sure everybody could have understood you know, because my dad passed away, and and uh, but uh, me and my dad, we were we were pretty close. He was a house painter; he painted all his life, and um, we were we were pretty close. Matter of fact, my older brothers and sisters said that uh, he petted me a lot, my dad, and uh, I, I reckon he did because I did get by with a, with a lot that uh, I should have got my licks from him (laughs) (laughs) but uh but i miss him i mean i still miss him today and and uh, but he was just an old country guy that uh go make a living and uh, go back down and see what's happening back down on the hill by the creek and stuff like that and you know but he he was he was a good guy you know tommy 1994 in the spring, you did miss the race at, at Richmond. That was the first race in the history of the Bush Series that you had ever missed. Mm-hmm. What do you remember about the weekend, and how difficult was that for you 
to miss that race? Well, it was it was pretty difficult uh, as far as not being able to get our car in because I got in Rick Bass' car. Rick and Johnny Hayes and those guys, I think it, they, they said they'd let me start the race. And, so they did. And, you and, did start that race, and, and that yeah, I didn't. We didn't start it in our car. Okay, you know? all right. But I was in Rick Mass car, and uh, we got we started last because I was starting the car, and we got to uh, about the hundred lap mark, and I had just passed Mark Martin for the lead, and then we had a caution, and Rick got in then, and I think he wound up fourth in the in the race, but uh, it, you know, it, it was time. At that point in time, you know, I could see the writing on the wall, and I could yeah. see that uh, the sponsorships was harder to get. Uh, you know, you're getting up on up in age, you're getting up in your late forties, and you know, uh, so on like that. But uh, after we went to Daytona in ninety. Five, I believe it was. Uh, when we had a big wreck there on the first lap and everything, and, and we had a really good car down there that day. And first lap, we tore the car all to pieces, along with a whole bunch of other people that was tore up that day. And I think Ron Cooper hit me head on, and he got some kind of brain damage out of it, you mm. know. Because I remember whenever he hit me, I was – I had turned around backwards and was going down along the wall, the outside wall at Daytona, probably still running 100 miles an hour backwards. And I remember Cooper hitting me. And when it did, it stretched me so much that my helmet, I had a full-face helmet on. It come down like this. My head was up in the roll cage, up in the car like this. But fortunately, yeah, it didn't. You know, it didn't knock me out or anything like that. You know, it, it was. But after that, I said, I don't need to do it anymore. You know, I just said, it's over. You know, I'm I'm quitting after that. And then got talked into a couple races to run, you know, old timer. And then go to Bristol. Racing with Glotchback and Pearson and Larry Pearson and David yeah, yeah, and yeah. Jack and all of them and everything. And then Larry gets hurt up there. And after I got out that time, I said, I don't need it anymore. You know, I just don't need it, you know. People said, would you not like want to make another lap in, in a race car? And I might in one of these cars, that, one of these new cars that you got now, like a <laughs> new cup car or something. Yeah. I might, but I'd just go however fast I want to go, see. Yeah. <laughs> not, not however fast it takes <laughs> to be competitive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, I've, I've had it. <laughs> I heard a story the other day that I had to ask you about. Uh, you did finish second at Bristol in the spring of 1994, and there's a rumor out there that you had pulled up alongside Mark Martin to congratulate him on winning, and because he was paying attention to you, that's basically why he pulled into the pits yeah. a lap early. Yeah. Is that what happened? Yeah, yeah I pulled really? up beside of him. I pulled up beside of Mark and said, congratulations, you know. Well, I wasn't. I was running third because David yeah. was running second. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so we get around back over there, and Mark just peels off, pulls in the pit. And I said, "He ain't took the flag yet." 
<laughs> I mean, it surprised me as much yeah. as it did him, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. But I kept on going because I wanted to see the checkered flag. You know, <laughs> that's pretty wild. So now we know the rest of the story. Yeah, there, there it is. <laughs> but see, getting back to it, Mark helped me back through uh, a couple times late in my career. We was trying to go to Atlanta, make the race, and he he gave me a setup, and he said this setup. He said it'll it'll get you in the race, and it did. It got us in the race in like. 15th, 16th, somewhere along in there. You know, it was a really, really good setup. But uh, he was friends, you know. I, c- I couldn't never complain about him being in cup and then running yeah. the, the bush race or somebody like that. You had the chance to watch Marty and Andy's racing careers develop, and now Andy's son Clark is coming up through the ranks and racing. What's that mean to you personally to watch generations – of the Houston family racing. Well, when when Clark first when he first started racing, he was racing through the woods, <laughs> back back over in Alexander County, and I thought, oh Lord, this boy's going to kill himself in the in the woods in that thing. And then he said he well he wanted to race cars, and then he started racing down at Millbridge Speedway, racing, and and he was all over the place and out in the cornfields and everywhere else, you know. <laughs> and so then he wanted to progress on into cars because he's 16, 17 years old. And uh, so they got lined up with uh, with uh, Ashley Huffman, Dwight Huffman. He was promoter at Hickory Speedway at one time. And he's driving Ashley's truck. And he's got some pretty good sponsorships uh, uh, come with him and everything like that. And I think he's run like 12 or 13 races, and he's won two of them. Okay. You know, so yeah. he, he, he's he got the potential there. He's he's pretty good. But he keeps sitting on the pole every week that he goes. But they keep, in, they keep drawing this pill out of this bottle, and they invert the top six. <laughs> well, he keeps getting winding up back about fifth or sixth on it. And he's not starting on the pole, so that's that's hurting him on it. But uh, he, he's going to be a pretty good racer, uh, not because he's my grandson, but I've, I've watched him race in at Kingsport, Anderson, South Carolina, you know, uh, uh, Tri County Speedway, places like that. And uh, he's he's going to be okay. He's going to do good. Right. I know this is an open-ended question. How would you like to be remembered? by race fans well i i reckon i'd I'd like for people to remember me kind of like uh uh, i remember a lot of the older guys you know like junior johnson i'm I'm not comparing myself to junior johnson by no means but uh uh, but i always uh, thought that people like junior johnson richard petty uh, well, people just like uh, Richard Childers, you know, uh, Ray Hendricks, people like that. I mean, they they were remembered as not only were they good, they were hardworking people, but they were just they were good people too, you know. I mean, they had their ups and downs, and they had their fights, and they had everything else, just like we did. But all in all, it gets back to, you know, thank God for everything that you got. And and I do every day, and I thank God for ever a, a bit of success that we had on the racetrack, and uh, I I just want to be re- remembered in that in in that kind of a tone, you know. 
or that kind of a light, so to speak. Tommy, I hate to end an interview with you because you are one of the all-time greatest storytellers ever. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about that. (laughs) So is there a story that you just feel like you have to get off your chest that people would like to hear, that people would enjoy, that people would love to hear? Well, yeah, I I, I think, uh, you know, I was uh, caught up in the racing deal and everything when Andy first started. He had a, a what you call a limited sportsman car, and uh, he would take it to the racetrack, and he would run, and I remember him coming to the supper table, and uh, Martha would put supper on the table, and Scott and Marty and Andy, they would all be there, we'd be eating supper, and and he'd say, do you think, and this was, this did make the seventh or eighth time in a row, he said, do you think I'm on a wreck every time I go to the racetrack? Because he'd come back and he'd have something tore off the car. You know, he'd, he'd be in some kind of a mess. Well, anyway, he got way better than that. Yeah. And But he was at Tri-County, and he had broke up, he had broke up, a brake rotor had broke on the thing. And this was during the race. Well, he had a kind of a red flag type deal. He's there again, limited car, and went out there. And I said, uh, "Give me a block of wood." He said, I ain't, "I ain't got no brakes." And I said, "Give me a block of wood." And he said, "Why? Well, you want block of wood?" And I stuck it up in the brake caliper up between the brake pads and everything like that, so he could go off and finish the ride. A block of wood. A block of wood stuck up up in there. But see, when you hit the brake pedal, the other three wheels brakes yeah. on it but if he had ever hit the brake one time and that block of wood wouldn't been in there it it just shot the pucks out and the fluid yeah. would have went everywhere and he wouldn't have no brakes at all <laughs> <laughs> it, it worked that and uh oh rick i've seen i've seen things in my lifetime in that racing garage when they were growing up that they were trying to do and to get their careers going that I thought, oh my God, I, I can't, I can't let them do this. I can't, I can't, absolutely can't let them do this. So I'd go to them and tell them everything else. They, they had to learn pretty much on their own, you know. Hello, Scene Ball Podcast listeners. This is Eric Quinn from QWare. I'm so glad that racing is back. It's nice to see it on TV. And of course, it's been nice to continue to be able to listen to the Scene Ball podcast with Rick and Steve and all their guests. And of course, they just hit the milestone 100th podcast. And I'm so proud of what Rick and Steve have been able to do with the Scene Ball podcast in preserving the history of this great sport. There's a lot of time and effort that goes into everything that happens at the Scene Ball podcast. And at QWare, we are proud to be a part of it. We also know that it takes a lot of time and effort to take care of the places where you work. And we want you to check out QWare and see what we can do when it comes to facility maintenance. We are the most powerful, most simple to use computerized maintenance management system on the planet. So check us out at QWareCMMS.com and see what we can do for your facility maintenance team in helping to keep your campus and your facility up and running. Now let's get back to the podcast.
Well, Andy, I don't exactly know where to start. So let's start here. What is your earliest memory of racing? Oh, I would say it's got to be, it's got to be late seventies, Hickory, Hickory Motor Speedway, just, just going and, you know, being in the grandstands and, and watching my dad race, um, you know, before the, before the Bush series started, uh, there was local guys that, that just ran at their local tracks. And I know y'all talked about that a little bit in the, in the last episode, but you know, you would go and you'd watch my dad battle guys like John Selemeyer and Harry Gant and Bob Presley and Jack Ingram. And, uh, all those guys would, you know, it, it, it was always a tough battle. And, uh, I just remember Hickory Speedway had a grass hill behind the grandstands and there was a little path wore down it down that hill. And that path is probably still on that hill to this day. And that is from us running up that hill and sliding down that hill <laughs> and then running back to the top and slide down that hill. We, we, we did that so many times that the hill was wore out and it was just a red dirt hill. And I remember after the race one night, my mom, she was so mad because she come to get us and, and we were just, well, I mean, we're just covered in dirt. We look like pig pen from Charlie Brown, you know, and <laughs> we, we, which we stayed covered in dirt most of our life, but not at the racetrack. You know, she wanted us to at least look somewhat presentable and she come to get us after the race and we were not very presentable. But that is, that's my earliest memories. Um, I've, I've got so many, um, you know, we moved to, we moved to the house that I grew up in in 1977, I believe. So I was about, six or seven years old and my dad built a shop right there beside the house. And that's where we raced out of for, for a number of years. And, um, you know, just as, as a kid, just hanging out in the shop and, and Marty touched on that a lot. Um, you know, you just go and you look at the cars and you kind of tell what kind of night you had by the way the car looked, uh, if you didn't go to the race and, and they had got home late, you would go down on Sunday morning and look at the race car, check out the wheel marks and see if there was any damage. Now, what was your first job in racing? What did your dad start you out doing? Um, actually, I didn't. I didn't actually start working for my dad full time, like getting paid, like Marty and Scott did. And and I think the problem was that that he was he was paying them, so he didn't really have enough money to pay me. So <laughs> I went to I went to work at I went to work at Duck Graphics for for a good friend of mine, Dale Buckworth, and. It's so funny because now my youngest son, Clark, that's where he works. He works at Duck Graphics. So he's he's kind of taken a little bit of the path I, I took. Well, when I was about, I don't know, 23 or 24, I started working for my dad full time. And in the, it, also at the same point in time, I was, I was trying to race and I was running limited sportsman and had moved and started running some late mall stock stuff out of my dad's shop. So, you know, we, we would keep my car there and I would – I would work at Duck Graphics during the day and then go work at the shop at night. And then eventually it just got to the point to where um, my dad was needing more help at the race shop. And uh, so I started working there full time. Jimmy, I'm sure Rick knows this story very, very well. But how did you get into the sport? It started back in high school. We had two teachers and, and you know how you have clubs in high school. We had the motorsports club and we, uh, We'd have a pick picking for homecoming and, and sell like you know the the meal, and we'd raise money to go to qualifying at Charlotte, so for the the All Star race. So I went down there for the club meet or whatever, and man, I'm telling you, once I saw the cars come around there, I was like, this is pretty daggum cool. 
this is kind of what I want to do. I've always been a car guy. And um, so that's kind of what got me hooked. And then I realized Rick would go to the racetrack for the local paper. So I started tagging along with him. And then, you know, you get, you get in the garage and you got to realize I was 18 years old going into the garage, which is, you know, like Andy grew up in that for somebody from a small town who didn't grow up in it. This is like the coolest thing in the world. Uh, the smell, um, the cars, you know, all that, you know how it is. Um, the first time you go and then, um, I just kind of decided I wanted to do it. And, you know, I, I went to a community college right out of high school. Uh, I realized that wasn't for me. Um, and through Rick's help, there was a, like a sportsman team I volunteered for. Uh, I think I volunteered for Billy Standridge at, at Wilkesboro one year. Uh, I think that was 95. And then Rick and I, I tagged along with Rick to Nashville uh, for a trip. And he asked me if we wanted to stop at Tommy's shop on the way back. Because you come down, you know, 40 and through Hickory and talk to Tom and, and Tom took a chance on bringing me on, uh, knowing I didn't know anything. Right. And, uh, just kind of took off from there. But I think it was, uh, it was, uh, Gant Sigmund and Casey Jones were the two teachers that had the motorsports club. If it weren't for them and Rick, uh, who knows where my life would be right now. Well, Jamie Andy's already told us about your <laughs> toolbox. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what in the world did Tommy have you doing when you first started for him? Jeez Louise. Like, I don't even remember that, to be honest with you. Like, I remember so much of working there, except working on the race car. Uh, you know, obviously you would start sweeping the floors, um, cleaning up, cleaning up pit equipment. I know the first month I worked there, I was pulling red devil decals off a trailer, off cars. Uh, like I didn't have any skin on my fingers from pulling decals because we just had, you know, Tommy just had suburban propane as a sponsor. And so I remember doing that forever. And, you know, and then obviously by the time of my tenure there, uh, it was such a small team. You had to do everything. Now, when I say everything, it's like, you know, you, you're changing plugs on the engine. I was helped getting the engine inspected at the racetrack. Uh, the inspection process was a little bit different way back then, but I was doing more hands-on stuff. It was, uh, you know, it wasn't just sweeping the, the floor. Now there was only Andy and Marty and Philip Syke, which is um, Andy's second cousin. I yeah, think, I, yeah, my second that worked there. And you got to realize Andy Marty didn't come in until like nine thirty, ten o'clock when, cause they were out, like, I don't know what they were doing, but they come in way later than the rest of us. Now we're getting somewhere. I was working on my own race cars at night is the reason. That, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. The fact, and the fact that I didn't like to get up early and Marty really didn't like to get up early. So, um, <laughs> exactly. You know, so, so my dad built a new shop over, um, you know, a couple miles from, from where we lived. So I, we still kept my late model cars at the house, at the shop at the house that we raced that up for a lot of years. So when I would leave, when I would leave the, the bush shop, then I would go to the late model shop and, and we would work, you know, we'd work till 10, 11 o'clock at night there. But that, that wasn't a good enough excuse not to, to come in at 930. The reason we came in at 930 is because we didn't like to get up early. 
<laughs> I'm telling you, on Monday Monday mornings, I think it would be like between Marty and Andy being on the phone talking about their race, their race on Saturday night. It was probably like noon by the time they got off the phone. <laughs> this is true. On Monday morning. Then, yeah, and then we would go to we would go eat lunch at the old Circle S restaurant there on Springs Road, Battershells yeah. Barbecue. Now, Andy, 1989 was the closest your dad ever got to the championship, but he had problems at Charlotte, and then he blew an engine in the season finale at Martinsville. What do you remember about those last few weeks of the season? Well, I, I remember I remember Charlotte really well. We had we had Tyson Chicken come on the car as a, as a one-time sponsor for the event. And, and it was something to do with Southern Biscuit Flour, uh, their, their connection. So anyway, Tyson come on. We were hoping to, I think we were hoping at the time to turn the Tyson deal into a full-time sponsorship. My dad missed the driver's meeting. I think he qualified somewhere in the top 10 or 12 at Charlotte. Had a really good car. Missed the driver's meeting. Um, I think they got mixed up on communication of, of what time the driver's meeting was. He thought it was an hour later than what it was and had to start in the rear. Well, on the, on the start of the race, and I think he talked about this a little bit in the podcast, but on the start of the race, um, Ed Barrier blew an engine and a piece of the engine block went through the radiator at the start of the race. And basically we finished pretty much last at Charlotte at the, at the time we were leading the points and it gave the point lead back to Robbie Moroso, who was second in points. Um, went to Rockingham the next week. Robbie had a, he had a bad day. He got a, he got a penalty. He got a pit road penalty of some sort from what I remember. Um, ended up, we got the point lead back by just a few points and um, went to Martinsville for the last race of the year. Really felt like, my dad was really, really good at Martinsville all the time and really felt like that we were going to have a good shot at, at winning the championship. And uh, late in the race, we had engine failure and broke a valve spring or rocker arm, or, you know, and, and then ended up, the engine blew up and uh, knocked us out. It was, it was heartbreaking. I mean, it was heartbreaking for my dad um, because he had tried so hard to, to win the championship and, um, uh, I think it's the first time I'd ever seen him tear up. You know, I mean, he knew that he knew that um, it might be his only opportunity. You know, and um, it's a tough day. You know, we had a great year, and we also had Roses Discount Stores come on as a sponsor for the next year. So we had a lot to look forward to, and had a great year the next year. Won a bunch of races, but didn't have enough consistency to to battle for the championship. Really, I think it's interesting that you say that about the emotion that he showed after coming up short at Martinsville because he wound up in a van with Rob Moroso after Martinsville and they're just chewing the fat. They're just talking racing. Evidently. Were you there? What was that conversation like? I wasn't, I wasn't in the van with them, but I've heard my dad talk about the conversation. Obviously I was at the race, but, um, my dad had a lot of respect for Robbie. I mean, he 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 knew that Robbie had a lot of talent, and he knew that that he could be a star in the sport. And and really, that whole conversation started by Robbie pretty much coming to console my dad. I mean, I think Robbie felt sorry for him, you know. And uh, I think that's when the story got told that you know he he. I think that's when he told the story about he wasn't sure he wanted to race his whole life that he might become a professional bowler, you know. But <laughs> um, he. Uh, Rob, Robbie was a special talent and, and, you know, just so unfortunate the way 
things went for, for him and, and, uh, you know, but my dad really, he respected Robbie and, and they didn't, they didn't have very many on track confrontations at all, maybe a few, uh, on occasion, but back then it was hard not to with, with anyone, you know, but, um, he really respected him. And if he won, if he lost the championship to anybody, I think, you know, I think he was glad to lose it to Robbie. Now, Andy, you are the first cousin of Del Earnhardt's wife, Teresa. Who was the Del Earnhardt that you knew away from the racetrack? Well, I mean, on the racetrack, he was you, – you never knew what you were going to get. You know what I mean? I mean, sometimes sometimes he would race you pretty clean from, from just watching, you know. And we did get to race a little bit in, in the Cup Series there in, in uh, 2000. Um, we, we got to race a little bit there. I ran about five races, you know, and, and all, but, uh, as far as him racing against my dad, um, he was a lot different out of the race car than he was in the race car. He was still intimidating and he was still kind of, you know, kind of a, I, I wouldn't say rough cut, but, but he intimidated you. If you talk to him on the phone or anything like that, he intimidated you. Dale helped me a lot when I first started racing, he gave me an engine, um, I remember him taking me to the Simpson truck at Daytona one year and, and told Bill Simpson to hook me up, give me a helmet, uh, racing suit. We had Dale Earnhardt Chevrolet on, on the first couple of race cars I had. So he helped me a lot. And, uh, you know, but on the racetrack, the, the deal at Indianapolis Raceway Park, um, it, 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 it kind of, it took a while for, for my dad and for Dale to patch that relationship. Uh, it, it probably took a good year and, and Dale and Teresa would come to, they would come to Thanksgiving at my grandmother's and, you know, a lot of times Dale Jr. And Kelly would come along with them. Uh, Dale Jr. And I got to be friends at a really young age. I mean, we were, you know, we were probably not even in our teens the first time we met. And, uh, you know, so we did spend a lot of time together, but after that, that crash at, at Raceway Park, um, I, I, it hurt my dad. He, it broke some ribs, and and it took a while, you know. But but in the end, they they patched it up, and and by the time, you know, by the time Dale passed away, um, I remember my mom and dad being on the on the starting grid there at Daytona for the five hundred, and and you know they were all talking, and and uh, you know, so I mean, it was all good. Tommy's team was definitely a family effort with Scott was a crew chief and then both you and Marty working on the team. Now, knowing what you know now as a husband and a father, what did it mean to you to personally work so closely with your dad and brothers in the sport? Oh, it meant everything. Um, so many memories. I mean, so many and so many people, so many faces that, that, come in and out of your life, just like Jamie. I mean, coming there and, and working at the shop and, you know, Slugger Labby worked for us for a period of time and West Ward and just a lot of guys, Eddie Young, a lot of guys that are still in the sport that have, have made a, a good career um, out of, out of racing and out of NASCAR, um, you know, come through our shop and, and worked with us at, at periods of time. And, and uh, you know, just so many memories and so glad that, you know, our family's still really close. I mean, we still, uh, once a month or so, we still go to my mom and dad's and, and our families, we eat dinner together. And, and, uh, you know, my mom and dad come to all of Clark's races whenever he races and, and we spend, we still spend a lot of time together. And I think a lot of that was instilled in us as, as young children and as from the racing and from spending so much time together. 
Andy, you talked about how you started to race yourself and after Jamie threw you so completely under the bus about sure did. You know, coming in late <laughs> and all that kind of thing. <laughs> we we all know about sports parents yelling and acting the fool in the grandstands at ball games, baseball games, football games, basketball games, whatever. What were your mom and dad like when you and Marty started racing? <laughs> That's a good question, Rick. Um, yeah. <laughs> my mom and dad, my dad was not allowed in the pits when we were racing. <laughs> and it, this is, this is the honest to God truth. The first, I think the first couple of times I raced um, in limited sportsman, you know, he would go with me to the track and it was just, it was total chaos. I mean, he was so like amped up and, and just, it, it, it didn't work. So after, you know, after maybe one season of, of short track racing, it was like, Hey dad, you, you need to just let us do this on our own. We'll, you know, we'll figure it out. We'll learn. So my mom and dad would at Hickory motor speedway, they would, they would park up in terms three and four by the fence in their van and they would back their fence up to the, to the racetrack whenever they were in town. Most, most of the time they weren't in town because my dad was still running when we were running. But when they were in town, they would back up to the fence and my dad would just stand there at the fence. And I remember so many nights where you'd be leading or run up front or trying to pass for the lead and you'd be under caution coming around there and he'd be giving you hand signals and pointing at the top and pointing (laughs) at the bottom. And I'm like, look at this crazy man up here. It's like, I'm so glad he's not on the radio or not in the fence with us. (laughs) Now, was that because he was worried or was that just because he was wanting you to do it his way? I think both, you know, I think more, I think it was more a worrisome thing that he, he felt like he could, he felt like he could help us. But you, just like you were saying, you know, sports dads and most of the time they don't help. Most of the time it's, <laughs> and, and I've, in all honesty, I've, I've learned this a little bit with Clark racing. I let those guys, and I'm talking about Ashley Huffman and Dwight Huffman racing. That's who Clark drives for. I let those guys handle it. Like at Tri-County this weekend, I didn't even, I, when I go to the racetrack with them, Lori's, my wife, Lori, she's like, why, why do you not wear a radio? And I'm like, because I can only be at maybe one race a year. So me helping him this one race a year is not going to help him the other 11 or 12 races that he runs. You know, it's like, let these guys handle it. You know, if they ask for my advice, I'll give them advice. But I've tried to, and I've learned a little bit of that from back in the day when, when my dad was thinking about, you know, when I was the son and, and having him trying to coach me. Now, Marty told us last week about your clipboard with the envelopes <laughs> and lead sheets in them. Okay. Now, since he tattled on you, <laughs> what is Marty's best innovation? Okay. <laughs> well, he, You've just got thrown under the bus by everybody on this podcast. Man. I have. And I did have a clipboard that weighed, you know, a few pounds. Um, <laughs> so anyway, Marty, see, we, we were, I mean, we always ran in the same division within maybe a year. You know, I started out first and, and I ran a year limited sportsman. And then I moved to the late mile stock series. Marty ran he come along the next year and ran limited sportsman. Then he moved to late mile stock. So within two years, we were competing against each other. Um, when, when practice would be over at Hickory, you would get in line for qualifying. Well, you just, you know, you just started lining up. Well, so if we had any kind of tricks or anything that we were wanting to try for qualifying, 
we would wait and see what they were checking or what they were taking in the tech line before we would go. Well, Marty and myself would always try to wait for the other one to go. So to see if we could get away with what we were, you know, what we were trying to get away with, whether it would be, you know, having an air cleaner that, that maybe had been soaked in something or, you know, trying to, trying to do something different on your tires or all these things, stuff that you can't get away with anymore. But back in those days, you could get away with it. So it would always be a standoff to see who was going to go first, you know, and Marty would usually win um, because he liked to cheat a little more than I did. <laughs> when I say win, I don't mean win the race. He would win the standoff. <laughs> All right. So what was his best innovation? Well, his, his car, his limited sportsman car, which originally was mine. Um, it had a lot of offset built into it. This car had like about three inches of offset built into the car. Well, he went to Hickory as a rookie and he won, he won twin features one night, like his third or fourth late mile race. Well, they told him after the race, they said, next week we're going to check the offset of this car. So he come back to the shop and, and I remember them contemplating uh, all week about um, the offset and how they were going to fix it. And so they ended up welding a fake frame rail on the inside of the chassis to from where they were going to check it to offset, to make the offset right. Well, anyway, they go back the next week and they, they roll it into the tech shed before the race and they measure the offset. Well, the thing's offset. They've miscalculated on their, their figures of, of where they welded these fake frame rails in. And the thing's offset a half inch the wrong way. And they, the, the track tells them, says, oh, you said, you know, you, your weights are the good. You can go more if you want to. You know what I mean? So his car is already three inches offset. Now he's going to make it three and a half inches offset <laughs> <laughs> you know, because, because they miscalculated all their frame rails. But I'm going to say that was probably the best um, ingenuity that they had. But Marty was, Marty was a good talent. He, he had a lot of, he had a lot of raw racing ability. He was fast. His car didn't have to be that good for him to run good. I felt like I had to work at it a lot more. I had to work on my car a lot more and, and spend a lot more time studying. But I can remember several Saturday mornings coming to the shop and Marty's crew showing up about an hour or so after my guys got there and his car would be sitting in the corner of the shop with about an inch of dust on it and all four tires would be flat from the Saturday before. His car had not been worked on all week. It had been sitting there in the corner all week. And they would have to bring an air tank and pump all four tires up to be able to get the jack under it, to jack it up and work on it. Now I'm talking 10 o'clock on Saturday morning, and we're going to the racetrack at three. And he would go down there, and he would run top three, top five, maybe win the race. And I had been working day and night on my car all week long, you know, and, and it's like, how does, how does that happen? But, uh, he, he was, he was good. He had a lot of talent. Well, Andy, the one thing that has always intrigued me, where is the lead helmet? Who has possession of the lead helmet now? I'm, I don't, I think they, they confiscated the lead helmet at Charlotte and I don't oh. think we ever got it back. I, I don't know what ended up with it or where it ended up, but I know it was, it was definitely confiscated at Charlotte. And, um, I don't think we've seen it. I don't think we've seen it since. Well, I'm going to ask Jamie a question. What was, what was the first year in the garage for you? What was that like? And 
how was working for the Houston's in particular? What was that like? It, it was it was great. Like I said, I uh, you know I didn't know anything going into it, right? Uh, so you go in there and, and you're just thrown right in the mix of it. You know, it's like you learn right away. You know how to work on the cars. Um, you know, it was just an awesome experience. Um, working for the Houston's, man, I'm telling you, they, they like, they treated you like family. I mean, you got to realize, and that's, here's the thing too, Andy kind of touched on it. Look at the talent that worked there. You had Slugger, you had, uh, Wes, uh, you know, Eddie, uh, paint the painter, um, Keith Barnwell. I mean, Philip side, Philip still works in racing. You know, the talent that came through Tom and Martha, is amazing. And I don't think people, you know, look at that enough. Like I say, I live two blocks from Tom and Martha. So I'd go over there at night, you know, they would have dinner. I remember pool parties, um, you know, they just treat you like family. And, you know, a couple of my favorite memories is going fishing with Tom at night. And there's this road on the way to the lake and we get to it and there's a stoplight and, Tom just blows through the stoplight. And I'm like, Tom, you know, you're going to, you, why don't you stop? And, and I'll never forget him telling me, he's like, if I can see down the road three miles that way, and I can see down the road three miles that way, why do I have to stop at that? And that was just how his outlook on life was. And, and one of the other memories, and to this day, when I get to this part of the story, you'll understand. I don't know what it was, but we were working on a race car, and Tom just came in in just a foul mood for some reason. And he kicked a tire wrap on the floor and he just started raising hell about tire wraps and the cost of tire wraps and, and, you know, reusing them to this day, I cut tire wraps so I can reuse them just from like that. asked you in like 20 some years ago, I, I cut tire wraps so I can reuse them. I don't know what, what had happened that day, but he was in a foul mood. And we all caught it. Hey, Jamie, I still, I still cut tie wraps to reuse them as well. <laughs> you know, and, uh, you, Andy, do you remember the gas can Tom brought in that he found on the side of Springs Road? It was, oh, just, yeah. you know, yeah. beat all the hell. And Tom's like, well, I mean, we can use this. And it's like, because you were giving him a hard time about the what for? Like, it, it's dented. Well, My dad. somebody lost it and we can use it. My dad would stop and pick up anything out of the road. Bungee cords, yeah. Um, yeah, or bungee straps, you know, uh, gas cans, anything that he found that he felt like he could use, he would stop and he would pick it up. He was in the mountains one day and saw a chainsaw sitting beside the road and he picked it up and he's like, I'm sure it fell out of the back of somebody's truck. And he went about a, you know, an eighth of a mile up the road and there was a gas can laying there. So he found a chainsaw and something to put gas in the chainsaw with all within a quarter mile. And I told him, I said, yeah, I said, them, I said, them loggers that was down there cutting those trees out, come back to the edge of the road and found their chainsaw was missing. You know, so I gave him a hard time about that. He said, oh, no, no, no. He's like, there was nobody around. I'm like, yeah, sure there was nobody around. Andy, there did come a point where your dad started missing some races. The team started missing some races. What was that time like for you? It, it was tough. Um, so, so whenever Southern Biscuit Flower came along, those were the heydays of, of his career. Uh, that's when things were really, really good. We, 
even though it wasn't that much money really, but at the time, no one else had that much money either. So we were one of the top teams. And, and even through the Roses discount store days, we were one of the top teams. Eventually, Roses decided to get out of racing. They decided to, to go a different direction. When that happened, you know, you had you had a lot of more people coming into the sport. You had Bobby Labonte come in and he had Slim Jim. Um, you know, you had Kenny Wallace and they had the Cox treated lumber. You had a lot more sponsors coming into the sport in those days. It was tough. Um, we, we picked up, I remember the first year we didn't have a full-time sponsor. Uh, we went to some races. Uh, this, that must've been in 95. We went to some races unsponsored. And then he picked up a little bit of money from, from Red Devil Enamels. And we ended up running most of that year with, with Red Devil. But you could tell it, from, from that point on, things were, were dwindling the wrong way. Uh, weren't running as competitive. Didn't have any factory support. We had had factory support for a lot of years from Buick, um, you know, supplying us engines and body parts and, and things like that. We didn't really have any factory support anymore. We ended up switching to Ford's um, sometime in that in that era, actually before the before the Roses sponsorship in the last year we ran was a Ford. Um, they went back to V8s in the Bush Series. Didn't really have a, a reliable engine builder, and so it, it got tough, you know. And and it got to the point to where we knew we knew he was within a few years of of probably being being done, you know, and and retired. But in the same time as all this was going on. Marty and myself were both winning a lot of races, local races. And, and, uh, you know, I had some, I had some great people supporting me, uh, Alex Little, who owns a chair company here in Hickory country chair, um, was just pouring money into to our late model racing. And, um, so we were winning a lot and we knew that, or we felt like at some point in time we would try to pass the torch. So I made my first bush start, uh, Bush Grand National Start in 96 at RP. We took two cars there. We did we had no business doing that. We had no business trying to run two cars anywhere. We we could hardly run one car, you know? And uh, but but my dad knew, I mean, he he knew that he was wanting to give me a shot. He was wanting to give Marty a shot. And uh, about the time that that he after the 96 season, he's like, he knew we were we were finished. He he didn't have a sponsor for 97, uh, didn't have um the equipment he needed to run in 97. And so we, we decided we were going to start building some pit equipment, building some pit boxes, um, you know, tire carts, tire wagons, try to try to establish some other type of business to keep us going. And this is about the time that uh, Mike Addington and Larry Addington, um, who I drove for in the NASCAR Craftsman Truck Series at the time, uh, called and, and were wanting to, to start a team. And they were actually wanting my dad to drive for them whenever they called. And my dad was like, I'm not really interested. And he said, I th- think I'm going to, he said, I think I'm going to work on trying to get Andy's career going. And that's, that's how that all come about. That's how that started. Andy, your dad and Marty and Scott and you, as I mentioned, it was a family team uh, almost from day one. And now your son Clark is racing. What's that like to be able to carry on the family business? Oh, I, it, it's great. It's it's a way like when, you know, Clark won, he won twin 40s Saturday at Tri-County in the Southeast Super Truck Series. And to watch him win races 
is so much more gratifying than, than any race I ever won. And my dad said the same thing. When I won my first Craftsman Truck Series race in New Hampshire, he talked about how that was the highlight of his career. Of all the races he's won and all the things he's done, there's nothing like watching your kids succeed, you know, and, and uh, to be able to watch him kind of carry it on. And, and you know, you, you kind of know at an early age. My oldest son, Colin, he loved racing. He loved being around racing. Him and my dad are basically two peas in a pod. They, they spend so much time together and they have all the same interests. But he really didn't, he didn't really have the bug. He didn't have the racing bug. Clark, from the time he was four or five, you could tell, you know, and, and by the time he turned 10 or 11, we had him in go-kart racing and, and was doing fairly well. And uh, so racing is different now. I mean, it's, it's way different. It's, there's a lot more money. Um, the drivers are expected to bring the money more so than the teams. And it's going to be tough for him, you know, but going and winning and, and being competitive that's all you can, that's all you can ask. And, and uh, he's got some great people backing him as well. Um, so hopefully we can continue to do that. Listeners follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com. And, Andy, I got to ask you, what kind of collection of Tommy Houston apparel do you have? Oh, I got a lot. Um, you know, I got a, I got, I got a neon, a, like a neon orange, neon red, maybe, and blue roses jacket from back in the day. I've got a, I've got a Southern biscuit flower jacket from, you know, old crew uniforms, um, hats. I've got tons of Tommy Houston t-shirts because. I worked at Duck Graphics for a lot of years. Well, Duck Graphics in the later years of, of my dad's career did a lot of his T-shirts and, and things like that. So, you know, the boys, my boys have, uh, they have several Tommy Houston T-shirts and stuff and they still wear them to this day, you know? So it's pretty neat to have that vintage collection and and uh, both both of, of my boys are into uh, all that kind of stuff. So they, they like finding vintage T-shirts and hats and things like that. Well, you know what, Andy? They can find it at speedway screens and you can check out the inventory at speedway tsj.etsy.com that's speedway tsj.etsy.com the april 23rd 1992 issue of winston cup scene steve this was the issue that gave birth to poor old Bob Pachris being tweeted the same question 10,000 times a weekend. And that question is, Bob, does this track have lights? <laughs> well, <laughs> there was a time on the Winston Cup schedule that no one would ask that question because they knew the answer. No. <laughs> <laughs> of course not. Well, the cover story on this issue is the very first test of the lighting system at Charlotte Motor Speedway. And Steve, that system cost the track $1.7 million. And this is what Humpy Wheeler got for his money. There were 1,200 fixtures. There were 56 poles from 70 to 110 feet tall. There were 1,700 mirrors, 75 miles of wire. 160 tons of steel, 520 tons of concrete, 
and 11 and a half tons of glass. <laughs> now that is a lot of stuff. That was a huge undertaking. I'm sure Andy can remember when this happened. Everybody was talking about lights at the super speedway as some kind of something out of science fiction. It was just unheard of. And a lot of people thought that Humpy had lost his mind. Yeah, I did. Uh, for <laughs> sure. I mean, I, I thought, uh, you're going to, you're going to light a super speedway. I mean, we always knew that you went to these places during the day, you know, and we had no idea that they were going to be able to light Daytona and, and, and even all these other mile and a half racetracks that are similar to Charlotte. Uh, whenever they did that at Charlotte, um, I thought, now this is, this is really something, something crazy. And the, then going and seeing it for the first time and seeing how bright it was. And, yeah. you know, we'd never seen any kind of lights that had those mirrors in them and were low to the ground, like what they had and, and things like that. It was, um, it was definitely a milestone in, in motorsports for sure. Well, this system used 2 million watts of power per hour. And that was enough to power 5,000 households. Now, anybody want to take a guess on who the first driver was out on the racetrack? It's my guess right here. All right. Yeah, I'm going to say, I'm gonna say uh, that Black 3 was probably uh, one, of the, one of the first ones there. Uh, he wasn't one of the first ones on the racetrack. He was the first ah. on the racetrack. <laughs> now, anybody want to take a guess on who the first driver was to blow an engine? The same driver, Dell Earnhardt. <laughs> Davey Allison ran a lap at 175.598 miles an hour on the second night of the test, which got him a $1,000 bonus from Musco Lighting, the company that had put the lighting system in place. Jeff Bodine ran a lap at 175.1 miles an hour the night before, and then Daryl Waltrip came in at 174.232 miles an hour. And there were 38,000 people in the stands for that first night. Well, that's because no one had ever seen anything like this before. And let me tell you something. The atmosphere down in the garage here was absolutely electric. Walking into this, those bright lights and not knowing what you were going to see. It was a whole different, really bizarre world down there. And some of us had a better look at it than others because some guy came around with these HD glasses, the ones that, you know, you can buy them today and you can use them at night for driving or anything like that. And he had about two or three pairs of them and he handed me one and I put that on and boy, that was really spooky. Then you were looking through HD glasses <laughs> into a lit garage area. It was just surreal. And you know who the guy was with the glasses? Morgan Shepard. <laughs> well, you know, there were more than a few people who were a little dubious about racing on a super speedway at night. And who can blame them? I mean, as you sure. mentioned, this had never been done before. Deb Williams wrote in her news report throughout the history of NASCAR stock car racing talk of placing lights around a super speedway has been more of a science fiction fantasy than reality. If one were to have mentioned such a venture to some of NASCAR's earliest stars, they would have laughed and gone back to working on their unsophisticated race cars. One can almost hear such drivers as the late Curtis Turner, Joe Weatherly and fireball Roberts guffawing at such a thought. 
but on the other hand, the the reaction of the competitors who were actually there and going out on the racetrack and trying things out, the reaction was almost pretty universally positive. Kyle Petty said during a press conference that big league stock car racing would have to one day be forced to run at night because of television and exposing the sport to more people. Dale Earnhardt said, I'm not talking down Bristol or Richmond, but they tried to do the job with half of what's needed with temporary lights. Humpy came in and decided to spend the money on the lights to do a night show right. There's no glare and there's no problem that I've seen so far. Put a couple of race cars out there and race, and it might be a little different. It looks like Hickory or Metrolina back a few years ago. Now, this is one that I did not remember. I did not know anything about this until I came across this issue. Rodney Combs actually drove a car that night that was equipped with actual headlights that actually worked. I don't worked. remember that. Oh. <laughs> Sounds like and, Rodney was preparing for the worst. <laughs> yeah, and they were not just decals. Now, Humpy Wheeler said, and no truer statement has ever been uttered at a racetrack. Humpy said, I think this will usher in a new era in racing. And that it did. Well, he was exactly right. It's much the same as Major League Baseball. Remember all those years baseball was played during the day. And all of a sudden, well, not all of a sudden, but over the course of time, they all got lights and more and more and more games were played at night. Even Wrigley Field had to come across sooner or later, and it did. The reason for that is exactly what racing needed. In other words, more people could attend a night game in baseball than they could during the day. Well, it's the same thing in racing. It doesn't matter if it run on a Sunday, which it normally was, to get more people interested and to get them to fill those seats. They had to go to lights. And now, you know, it's pretty much routine. The first in-focus photo just inside the back cover of this issue features Bruton Smith throwing the switch to turn the lights on at Charlotte Motor Speedway. And then the next photo in the in focus section on the inside of the back cover shows the top of his head on fire. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Steve, how would you have liked to have been Eddie Gossage after that one? I'm sure that Eddie Gossage got in his car and went home after that one. (laughs) (laughs) Now, in this issue, there was also a feature story by Ben White, and it was about the turnaround that Terry Labonte and Hagen Racing were experiencing early in the 1992 season. Terry had finished in the top 10 in all seven races that had been run to that point in the 1992 season. And this issue would have been released going into Martinsville where Terry finished fourth. Now that was eight top tens in a row, but then came Talladega where an engine let go and Terry finished 36th after completing only 77 laps. So it's my contention Steve Wade, that being jinxed Terry. Well, I'm sure that Terry might have thought the same thing. Here's a crazy one for you. Terry started out the season running Oldsmobiles, but then he switched to a Ford at Talladega and Daytona, and then he ran a Chevrolet at Charlotte and Atlanta. So he ran Oldsmobiles, he ran Fords, he ran Chevrolets. So that was a lot of swapping back and forth at that time. Well, if I recall correctly, they were just trying to find themselves the best competitive car they could. And that's the reason why they started swapping out, which is a bit surprised. You know, 
I don't know. Andy knows better than I do, but that, that sounds like a somewhat expensive proposition. Yeah, if you switch cars, you, you got a whole new base to start from. I'm sure it was. I mean, uh, everything would everything would be different from the the oiling system to the oil lines to the wiring to, you know, I mean, Fords and Chevrolets were, I mean, like, kind of like oil and water, you know. So, I mean, yeah, I'm yeah. sure that that uh, to swap different makes like that, um, you, you didn't see that very often. But kind of like Steve said, I believe it was just a, a deal to where, the Fords were probably better on the, on the speedways at the time. And, and they felt like, uh, you know, if you can't beat them, you need to join them. Terry said in this issue, I don't care who you are. If your car won't run, you can't win races. You've got to be with a good team with good equipment. And that's the key. We haven't run a Chevrolet and an Oldsmobile back to back at the same track. So I'd have a hard time judging the two. I do know that the Chevrolet that I ran at Daytona versus the Oldsmobile I ran at Daytona it was, of course, at different times, but there was no comparison. The Chevrolet was head and shoulders above the Oldsmobile. It was a much faster car, handled much better, and was just a lot better. Now, Steve, you had a feature on Michael Waltrip and how there was talk that people were saying that 1992 was a make-or-break year for Michael. I think they said that about Michael every year (laughs) until he finally won the 2001 Daytona 500. Michael said, I don't know. I hadn't really thought about it. I've said this before, and it's the truth. I don't guess I can say it enough. I don't worry about all that. When I get in the car, I try to please myself. I try to be happy. And the only way I'm going to be happy is if I'm competitive in a position to win and I do a good job. If I can do those things, then I'm going to be at peace with myself. I'm not concerned about all that other stuff. Well, the rap against Mike, and fair or not fair, some people thought that he had some quality rides that over, the, over the years, and leading into 1992 had another one. And the thinking was, well, Mike's got to show up sooner or later in Victory Lane with all the uh, you know good stuff he's had and good teams he's been with. Now, that may not be fair, totally fair at all, but that's what some people were thinking at that time. Now, this issue also carried another feature by Deb Williams, and it was the first of a two-part series on insurance in racing and the problems that competitors sometimes experienced in getting adequately insured. And that's something that not a lot of people think about. No, absolutely not. But Deb was very good about going after those kinds of issues And this story outlines some of the problems that people like Neil Bonnet and Debbie Baldwin, whose husband Rick had been comatose since a 1986 accident in Michigan, and Gene McDuffie, J.D.'s widow. This story talked about some of the issues that they were having with insurance and and, and things like that. So, Andy, is insurance even something that you thought about as a competitor? I I don't think so. Um, And it's just because – you know, at the time you're just worried about racing, you know, and, and that's, that is what, you know, that is what you, you lived and you breathe. But as you get older, you, you get wiser and, and you start realizing. And, and I think a lot of the, a lot of the cup drivers, once they started making a lot of money and, and having a lot of assets and knowing that, um, that you need to be protected, uh, started, you know, started thinking about those things more and more. Um, obviously with, as the money increased, you, you, you know, you start wanting to take care of, of your livelihood and, and your family and, and things like that. So I think that's when, 
when the insurance really started getting involved because for, you know, for all practical purposes in the early days, a lot of insurance companies wouldn't insure race car drivers, you know, right. Yeah. They were, they were considered a, um, a bullfighter or a paratrooper or something (laughs) else, you know, it's like, uh, it was just too, too much of a risk. So, um, I think I'm not sure, but I think K and K was maybe the first ones that started insuring drivers. Um, and the only and, one. And oh, yes, yes. And yeah. and that's uh that's when, when people started, you know, thinking about insurance and worrying about it. And finally we get to Tommy Houston's win at Hickory. From the outside looking in, there were two things that really stood out about that day. First and foremost, Andy, there was your grandfather Oren who passed away two days before the race. And then also, uh, during the race, there were 26 cautions. 26 cautions. So, Andy, what do you remember in particular about that weekend? Well, I remember it was, um, I remember it was fairly, it was fairly warm that day. And, and just the fact that the racetrack was coming apart was the, the biggest thing I remember. Um, I know that my dad had, my grandfather died on Thursday. So, I knew that my dad had talked about not racing uh that weekend and all his brothers and sisters uh my my dad was my dad had seven brothers and sisters he had had four sisters and three brothers so he he come from a large family and they all encouraged they all encouraged him to race they said you know he would want you to run and 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 so that's what he did and then to go on and win the race and and to win it the way he had to win it i mean if you ever got off the bottom of the racetrack, you would, you would spin out. It was just so many marbles. The racetrack was coming apart and he spun early in the race. He got, I believe two laps down in the race, um, made both those laps up and then, and then come back and, and won the race. Uh, it was a special day and, and he wasn't, you know, he wasn't overly happy in victory lane. I think he, it was bittersweet for sure. Uh, but, uh, you know, we had no idea that was going to be his, his last win in the series. But uh, if it was, if you were ever going to have that, that was, uh, you know, that's what it was meant to be. Andy, tell me about your grandfather. What do you remember about him? My grandfather had four sons, had three daughters. Um, at one point in time, all four of them, I think, right? Maybe my, my, my one uncle, Ronald, who we referred to as Slick, and he still goes by Slick as this day. I don't think he ever raced much, if, if at all. He might have raced a time or two. But um, my uncle Hal, who was Dale Earnhardt's father-in-law, my uncle Ken, who owned American Muffler for a lot of years, uh, Ken was – he was state champion. He was Hickory Speedway track champion. Uh, Hal had won a lot of races back in the day, and Ken and Hal were pretty com- fierce competitors against each other at one point in time. And then my dad was a little younger than them, and he'd come along after those guys. But I don't ever remember my grandfather. Uh, we called him Clyde. You know, his, his name was Oren Clyde Houston. I don't ever remember Clyde going to the races. Um, you know, I would spend time with him at, at family gatherings and just stopping in to, to say hello to, to, to him and, and my grandmother. Um, but, you know, he, he, was, um, he was always kind of a quiet fellow um you know I, I guess if you if you have you know eight kids you, you probably won't spend a little bit of time by yourself on occasion <laughs> <laughs> you know but uh but uh no he was uh you know he he was just a he was a he was a really good fellow and and uh you know it was uh it was a it was a tough weekend for sure 
So you've got an uncle named Slick Houston. That's right. Steve, yep. don't get any ideas <laughs> at all. Don't don't even go there, man. <laughs> Slick Rick. Uh, yeah, that, that that's right. That could be that could be where it comes from. You know, the thing about this race, other than your grandfather, is really just how bad the track conditions were. There were 26 cautions and three red flags, one because of a funeral that was taking place at the cemetery across the street from the racetrack or whatever, <laughs> and nearly half of the 300 laps were run under the yellow. Yeah, I mean, just like I said, the racetrack was coming apart, and and it was a warm day, and it the, the, it ended up being a one groove racetrack, and you know, a funny a funny story about that weekend as well. Towards the end of the race, uh, and I, this race is on YouTube, so you can watch it. Towards the end of the race, my dad and Jimmy Spencer got in a pretty fierce battle for the lead late in the race. Jimmy was driving a car for Dwight Huffman who Dwight's son, Ashley, is who my son Clark races for. So kind of a small world. And, and out of the, actually out of the same shop and stuff that that car had, had come out of, um, they're, they're up in Conley Springs. And uh, so D- Dwight Huffman had race cars for a lot of years, and, and uh, guys like Tommy Sigmund would drive them. They ran some, you know, they, they didn't run all the Bush races, but they ran a handful of Bush races. And uh, – Jimmy Spencer drove for him, you know, a few times, Jimmy Hensley, just, just some different guys uh, during that time. So now Clark is driving for his son, Ashley, out of the same race shop, which is pretty neat. Well, here's a scenario for you, Andy. Let's say that Jimmy Spencer and Tommy Houston get together racing for the lead late in the race at Hickory. Who wins the fight? The bunch of Houstons that are there or Jimmy Spencer? <laughs> well, I would say – that the Houston's at that point in time would have had a lot more people to help out if they if needed to be, you know what I mean? I mean, uh, my dad was, my dad was very popular, um, at Hickory Speedway. Of and you, you know how, you know, how them Southern, you know, how them Southern fans are too. They're not gonna, they're not gonna put up with uh, much from a guy from Pennsylvania for sure. That's exactly right. <laughs> 1992 was Richard Petty's last year as a driver and seen ran various people's memories of Richard in the paper each week. And in this issue, Winston Cup scene editor Gary McCready remembered being a young reporter who needed to talk to Richard about a rule change that had been made. But when Richard came out of the meeting, Gary stopped him and Richard couldn't talk at that point. And Richard said, look, I'll be glad to talk to you, but not right now. I've got problems with my team, problems with the car, and problems with my son. As soon as I get everything fixed, we can talk. And Richard took off and did whatever he had to do. Now, problems with the team, I can understand. Problems with the car, I can understand. But problems with Kyle? Come on, man. (laughs) (laughs) Impossible. Yeah, right. (laughs) Now, four hours later, Gary is standing there in the garage and he's collected basically what he needed and he felt a tap on his shoulder and it was Richard Petty. And Richard said, everything's taken care of, so how can I help you? And that to me is everything that it means to be Richard Petty. Yeah, you won't see that in any other professional sport at that time and I'm not sure you get that kind of treatment if you are Gary McCready now. Andy and Jamie, what are your memories of Richard? Oh, he just class act. I mean, he's 
to me, Richard Petty is is NASCAR. I mean, he's everything that that where the sport come from and, and the things that he did and the person that he is. And he's still that person. He's still that guy that'll stop and sign an autograph for a kid and, and not just sign RP, sign Richard Petty. And if anyone has ever seen Richard Petty's autograph, it takes a minute for him to write it. You know, I mean, <laughs> it's uh, it's a lot of circles and swoops and things like that, that, you know, he's just that fellow. He's that kind of guy that, that knows the fans are the reason that we have been able to do what we do. From the day I started to the probably the last day I was ever in the garage, every time you see Richard Petty, it's like, that's Richard freaking Petty. Like, you know what I'm <laughs> saying? It's like him and, and when Pearson would come in the garage, it's like that's what the, the sport was kind of built on. And you just always looked at him like uh, like looking at royalty because, you know, he, he was royalty for racing. It's pretty cool to see him, uh, you know, Six foot three, hundred and fifty pound dude with a big old cowboy hat on. It's pretty awesome. Now there was a short story in the news section about Joy Knuckles, who was at the time a tire changer for Robert <laughs> Yates Racing and driver Davy Allison at the time. And the team had made a pit stop at North Wilkesboro earlier that month. And when it was over, somebody handed Joy one of his shoes, <laughs> and Joy didn't even know that it had come off. So. Evidently, he had made several trips back and forth between the track and the team shop in Charlotte that weekend. He said that he had been into days after working about 110 hours that week. So when he got to the track the morning of the race, he had forgotten the shoes that he wore during pit stops. So he borrowed a pair from Eddie Dickerson, who was crew chief for Rusty Wallace. And Rusty wound up finishing second to Davey that day. And Joy said in this story, I guess they were a little too big, but it's something. I beat Eddie with his own shoes. I learned you have to go with scuff stickers up there. The new ones give you too much of a bite. I'll have to go from low top stickers to high top scuffs. <laughs> Andy and Jamie, at this point in the show, I think it would be appropriate to discuss my legendary turns as the signboard holder <laughs> for Tommy Houston at Nashville. And then again, I think I helped out at New Hampshire one day. The Nashville race was such a momentous occasion in my own career that to this day, 20 some odd years later, that's a lug nut from Tommy Houston's pit stop at Nashville. And that has been on my keychain ever since. Now things obviously have a way of happening during pit stops. And I remember at Nashville in particular, Tommy Houston got all over the signboard holder for not stopping him in the right place in the pit. Oh yeah, He lit me up. And I knew that I had better not mess up the next time. Now, what's the craziest stop that the two of you have ever been involved in? Yeah, I got a couple. And actually, they both involved you when you were driving for us at PPI. Uh, you know, I'm a big, lanky guy, and I'm not very coordinated. So the one thing they, they would let me do would hold the catch can. And uh, 2001, Daytona 500, we all know what that was about. Uh, but, Andy, you ran good that race. Like, I don't know if you remember that. I remember you ran good. Yeah, we ran I also good. remember, like, uh, Johnny Wright was gassing the car, and I was catching gas, and we did not spill a drop of fuel of that race. Uh, I'll remember that, like, yesterday. Um, the other one was Texas later that year, and you were running good that race. And you remember the catch can getting stuck in the car? I do remember that, yeah. It drove you about halfway down Pitt Road. <laughs> <laughs> it did. It did. Here I am on national TV getting drugged down 
pit road. One, and one of the few races we were actually running good. Uh, it's one of those deals. I wish I could get that back. You weren't the only one yeah. that had that happen. No, no, I wasn't. But <laughs> I, I do remember that. Um, well, Rick, to, to answer your question, uh, the, the craziest thing that I ever remember being a part of, and I'm not even, I don't remember actually being there, but I remember being a part of this at the shop. When, when the Bush Series used to race at Indianapolis Raceway Park, they had a, they had a pit stop competition for the Bush Series guys. And my, my oldest brother, Scott, Scott was always, Scott always would rather, he would rather cheat and lose than win legal. I mean, that was just <laughs> kind of his, that was kind of his philosophy. You know, he was always trying to figure out a way that we were going to cheat him. So for the pit stop competition, uh, he decided that we were going to build these special wheels to use in the pit stop competition and that we would weld three of the lugs onto the wheels and drill the threads out. And then you would only have to hit two lugs when you put the tires on. Well, he tried to use these wheels like three years in a row. I think the first year it worked and the next year too many people had knew about it. And, and so NASCAR had been forewarned. Uh, that this was going on, and after the competition was over, they went to torque. They went to torque the wheels, and the torque wrench bro- actually broke the welded lugs off the wheels, and and they ended up disqualifying them. And I still don't think they won. I still think they finished second or third <laughs> and, and got disqualified. You know, uh, because it it threw you off your rhythm so bad by having three welded and and two, and and the re- the the way they knew the two. The way they knew the two lugs that weren't welded, they they took a like a paint pen and they painted the outside of those lugs. They didn't paint the outside of the other three, so pretty obvious that that three of the lugs were welded on. But uh, that that's probably the craziest thing I remember as far as is being involved in pit stops and the fact that you were talking about being a sign man. Um, when I was when I was 14, 15 years old, I used to to hold the signboard for my dad. Uh, and that was and at a time where you were out on pit road. Absolutely. Yes. You didn't have a pole. You held, oh, the actual, oh. you held the actual chalkboard basically is what it was, even though you didn't write anything on it. You held it out in the pit stall. You went out on the pit road. And I remember, I think the first race that I did, it was at Daytona uh, for the, for the goodies 300, the Bush series race on Saturday and 15, maybe might've been 16. I don't know. I was young. And walking out there in these cars, they didn't have pit road speeds at those times. And you could just come down pit road. And the reason that they said that they wanted to make me the signboard is they felt like that that my dad wouldn't run over his own kid uh, coming in the pits. (laughs) (laughs) But you talk about a a, a 15-year-old sitting out there holding a signboard. You you were – I mean, I was absolutely terrified, you know. But uh, I held it and I survived and, you know, lived to tell about it anyway. Finally, in this issue, there was a story breaking down the letters to the editor that Scene had received that year. Through April 14th, Scene had received more than 400 letters to the editor. 173 were about this driver, that's racing tactics, and of those, 87 were about <laughs> Ernie Irvin. <laughs> now, that's just hard to believe. <laughs> 62 had been received about television coverage. 50 had to do with the Ford Chevrolet rivalry, and those were split about 50-50 between the two. Letters had also been received about NASCAR and its rules, 
Gary Nelson becoming the Winston Cup director, racetrack ticketing policies, hotel rates, and the Richard Petty farewell tour diecast cars. Now, that was a subject, evidently, of quite a bit of debate that year, Steve. There was a letter to the editor in this issue from Jeff Brown of Cheryl's Ford, North Carolina, that uh, it was, I had to read it two or three times to make sure I, that what I was thinking I was reading was, was accurate. But this letter absolutely ripped Richard Petty to shreds. Now, Jeff wrote in his letter, what it really looks like is Richard is getting greedy and trying to stop people from making a profit. If he's so concerned about fans being screwed, what about when he was on a recent cable TV shopping program selling $12 jackets with a couple of patches on them for $105? Or how about the latest scam of cutting his race car into 4,300 pieces and selling them for $430 each? That's nearly $2 million for one car body. So how can he have the nerve to talk about overpricing? This whole farewell tour is nothing but a financial scam and Richard Petty is the head ripoff artist of the whole bunch. This guy is talking smack <laughs> about Richard Petty. Now, Jeff, I don't know if you're still around. I don't know if you still follow the sport, but you can't be talking about Richard Petty like that. It just, you just, it, no. Be honest with you, I never heard any of that about cutting up his car and selling the pieces. And I don't think it ever came off. Now, Andy, what could we've got for forty three hundred pieces of your car? I don't know. Maybe forty three dollars. I think. <laughs> you know, um, I do remember the diecast that they had at Foodline. You know, and you got a you got a different diecast. Um, you got different diecast every week, and and it had a different you know the the race weekend on the deck right. bed. I think maybe, uh, but yeah. I do remember those cars. But that's that's really about all I remember about the farewell tour, other than the fact that he finished Atlanta with no front end and he was on fire at one point. Right. Yeah. I have a collection of those, uh, diecast cars. Okay. Gave them to a friend. Gave them to a friend. <laughs> Aha. Here's the rest of that story. <laughs> one of the very first times that you and I recorded this podcast, we, you were still in your other house a few miles from where you're living now. And I think you were getting ready to move. So I think you were just kind of clearing out some of your stuff. Margaret was saying, Hey, you got to get this stuff out of here. And so I went home that day with a full set of Richard Petty diecast cars. <laughs> I, went with a, I went home with a Daytona International Speedway mug. I had all, I just, your friend scored big that day. Well, I just want to make sure that all that valuable stuff went to a good home, Rick. <laughs> I'm still looking for that uncut sheet of tracks cards. That's my next acquisition, I think. You can keep looking because you're not finding here. <laughs> I'm Cliff Champion, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Well, Steve, I think that we have kept Andy and Jamie here long enough. Andy, Jamie, thank y'all so much for being here. Thank you for your friendship over the years. Jamie, thank you for putting up with me and Charlie Daniels all those years. So I appreciate you <laughs> yes, guys sir. a lot. Yeah, it's been a lot of thank fun, guys. 
Rick, uh, I, you know, I really admire what you guys are doing, Steve. It's, uh, you know, it's pretty cool that, that you, you have the, the ability to, to, uh, to try to, you know, cherish some of the past and some of the memories. And that's, you know, that's what, what this is all about. And just like I touched on earlier about, you know, our family, you, you know, you, the, the memories you cherish forever. And, and, uh, uh, just like Jamie, just remember the first day you come to the shop and, and just have that memory, you know? So, uh, I really appreciate what you guys do. Let me ask you this yeah. one final question, Jamie, do you have a toolbox now? Oh yeah. Yeah. I definitely got a toolbox. I, to be honest with you, I know this probably won't make it. I have a set of wrenches that I call my relationship wrenches. And it was a deal where my favorite wrenches, right? And if I was in a relationship with a girl, if I would rather sell the wrenches or in the relationship, that's how I knew. So, like, <laughs> that's why I married my wife. That yeah, I'm she because she, I finally told her the story. She's like, seriously, I want to see these wrenches, and I showed her. She's like, oh yeah, it's nice wrenches. <laughs> so I will tell you about like in closing. Uh, some of my favorite memories of Winston Cup scene, uh, and I, Rick, I briefly touched on this the other day. Uh, and, and for the listeners who don't know how it would go on Fridays, you know, you would get the car through qualif or you know through inspection, and there was a brief time where it was like a downtime between inspection and uh, practice. Uh, the coolest thing was somebody—I don't know who it'd be. Maybe it was you, Rick. Sometimes would pass out, you know, about five Winston Cup scenes on the back of the race haulers. And during that downtime, you'd go get a Winston Cup scene and you'd read it and, uh, you, you know, see what somebody said about the week before or, or you know, see if your picture was in it from whatever. So uh, always, always enjoyed those Fridays after uh, inspection, reading the Winston Cup scene. All right, guys. Thank you all so much. I appreciate yeah. you. Yeah. Andy and Jamie. Yep. Thank you, guys. Good yes, day. thank you. Thank y'all. Right. Have a good day. All right, man. Jamie, good to we'll see you, Jamie. What's up, Mr. Houston? How are you? I'm doing good. How about you? I'm good. Oh. <laughs> we, we lost him. Us Houstons in technology just don't mix too well.